0: All right. Welcome back to another episode of Speakeasy Sessions. Uh, I am here with two new colleagues this time. Um, They already had a better idea than, than how I started the last pod, which is, I should say, Uh, comes now Eric Motes or we are on the record. So and I obviously didn't start like that. But I might next time I might steal their idea. So we have uh, two associates at the firm. We have Trevor Waynefield and Carrie. I still don't even know how to pronounce your last name. So that was going to be my first question to you. Can you please pronounce your last name as it's supposed to be pronounced?
1: Yeah, super easy. Law, liberty.
0: Yeah, but I La think, liberty. Yeah, but I I think you said it was supposed to be like la liberté.
1: Well, yeah, it's French, but I can't say that without sounding you know like an asshole. So okay.
0: I, 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 told, I <laughs> That's true. It's, uh, it sounds a little pretentious. Yeah. Not that all French
2: sounds pretentious. It's actually a pretty uh, beautiful language. Also, uh, for the record, you don't know how to say my name. Yeah, isn't Did it Wayne
1: say- Waynefeld?
2: Waynefeld. Wow! Dang.
1: I threw an extra eye
0: in there. You did. Okay. All right. See, this is where it takes advantage that I can edit this because now I'm going to go back and <laughs> I'll just sub in Wayne. He's, Wayne he's trying. Wayne to, we're
1: trying to offend all the Jewish people and all the French people. Yeah, pretty good job. So far.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So we're off to a great start. Uh, me not knowing how to pronounce anybody's last name. Um, we are here. We're going to talk about a uh, pretty interesting case today. Um, the case actually is titled the initial case is uh pharrell williams et al versus bridgeport music inc at uh, all it is case number 13-06-004 and it was filed in the central district of california that was probably a mouthful but in reality what we're talking about is the song blurred lines um which was produced by pharrell um, and the artists that were credited on the song were pharrell williams robin thick and clifford harris jr Uh, we'll get into cliff's actual name in a little bit but um before we get into the case we're obviously talking about music a little bit i want to make one caveat before we start talking about stuff here uh nobody in this firm and especially nobody talking on this podcast uh is a music or entertainment lawyer uh we like music we like entertainment but uh not really a area of expertise yet in our firm so We're going to wade through some interesting procedural stuff, but uh, please do not uh, take this as any legal advice on how to prosecute or defend a copyright infringement case for, for music. I I know it's something that Carrie might want to try to do in the future. So if she does it, we might have to delete this one. So it's not held against her, but, uh, but as we go through, just, just know, obviously that's a lawyer giving you a caveat because that's what we're, that's what we're built to do. Um, So understanding it's about music before we actually start, uh, we got some really good feedback, uh, on our, on our last podcast, um, asking me to actually introduce the people I'm doing it with and, uh, get to know them a little better so people can understand who's talking behind the microphone. So I'm going to drop some questions on you guys, um, that I didn't put in the outline, um, just to kind of get a feel for why I picked you guys, um. So these two are actually pretty big music fans. Um, I will say, Carrie, I think it was your first or second Friday you were in the firm. Uh, and Friday is usually a little more of a casual day. And you were walking around with some pretty dope uh, leather pants and then a giant biggie t-shirt. Yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, respect. So, And Trevor's got a uh, record player in his office and is always blasting some good music. So we've had some good conversations. So, I want each of you, real quick, um, we'll start ladies first. We'll start with Carrie. I want you guys just to give me a feel for what kind of music you like and listen to.
1: Oh, gosh. That's so difficult for me because I'm kind of all over the board. Obviously, you know, 90s, uh, early 2000s hip hop is huge for me, hence the biggie uh, t shirt, sweatshirt, all the things. Um, But I also grew up listening to a lot of country music, a lot of 70s hits. I like anything from Tropical House to reggaeton, rap. I mean, pretty much you name it and I'll listen to it. Other than heavy, heavy metal, that I won't listen to that. But anything else is fair game.
0: So I got to tell you, uh, Lishko, I'm going to throw you under the bus uh, a little bit if you're listening to this. But he said he pulled up to you one time. It was like two o'clock on like a Saturday and you were driving on the street and he rolled up and he could hear the music blasting from your car about two blocks down, and it was just like 1990s, just like rap blaring, like, and you were shaking all six cars around. So uh, I think I know what kind of music you like to listen to when you're, when you're cruising the streets of, uh, of Phoenix. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's mood, mood specific for sure. And Lishko, for anyone who doesn't know, is another attorney here at the firm. Uh, we went to law school together, so he's, he's seen some things. Um, and that, that story does not surprise me.
2: So it's funny answering that question. I used to say really anything but country. Um, and recently I, I came across this artist called Orville Peck, who is contemporary country and I actually really love. Um, so, so really now the answer is I listen to just about everything under the sun. Um, what you'll usually hear me listening to is house music recently. Um, but it, like Carrie, it's really mood dependent.
0: Okay. All right, I have uh, two questions, so we're going to start with you this time. Uh, first concert,
2: Trevor. I'm to say who you're talking to. What? I can I see who you're pointing
0: at. I know. well, That's why I said Trevor, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you a hand signal so you know when to talk. But if you don't want hand signals this entire time, I'll just let you go.
1: I want the hand signals. <laughs> okay.
0: Trevor, I'm, by the way, for the people on the podcast, I'm pointing to Trevor right now. First concert.
2: When I was 15, I saw Slightly Stupid and Revolution Open for them. Nice. That's the first concert that I remember. It's a pretty good
1: concert. Yeah, that's dope. Uh, first one that I remember was Third Grade, Shania Twain.
0: Also a pretty good concert.
1: Yeah, it was It was lit.
0: Okay. Reverse order, carry, Second concert.
1: Oh, God. I couldn't even. It was going to be. It's got to be another country concert because it was when I was young, probably also visiting down here. I'm gonna say martina mcbride but i don't know that for sure
0: that i'm actually impressed you even gave an answer because I've, I've asked this question to a couple people before and everybody knows uh, their first concert um but nobody like knows what their second concert is because i think you remember like the first experience and all that kind of stuff
1: well you got to remember i grew up in alaska so their concerts were few and far between right so they they were all pretty memorable
0: I completely forgot you grew up in Alaska, notwithstanding the fact that you are wearing an Alaska sweater right yeah,
1: now. Represent.
0: So you had to travel down for like every concert you ended up coming to? Yep. Yeah, I can't, I, I, I didn't see the notification for like Taylor Swift going to Anchorage for on our Eras uh, tour.
1: Yeah, yep. All
0: right, Trevor, do you remember your second concert? I do not. Okay, all right, that's, that's the answer I was expecting. Um, okay. Best movie soundtrack. While you guys are thinking, I'll let whoever whoever comes up with an answer, just raise your hand. But I will tell you, my favorite movie soundtrack, and this will give listeners kind of an indication of music I like and listen to, is Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Uh, hmm. Kind of like an indie film. It's got like a bunch of indie music. Uh, it's got like the XX on it and stuff like that. But I I
2: absolutely love that soundtrack.
1: I don't know if I can... One's not coming to mind.
2: There's a, a few that come to mind for me, uh, and most of them are, are somewhat recent. I, I know Quentin Tarantino's had some really good soundtracks, and one that comes to mind is Django Unchained.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: that one was really fun and cool. Uh, I want to say that Everything Everywhere All at Once had a really good soundtrack. Yeah, it did. Um,
1: was it as unique as like the movie and the...
2: It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that whole movie is strange. Um, If you had given me some time to prep, I probably could have
1: some more. Same. I know that's that's
0: the point. That's the point. It's supposed to be impromptu. It's impromptu. Um, Okay, so let's let's get into the the what we're going to talk about a little bit. But before we get into the case on the song, I actually want to talk a, a little bit about some background information kind of on the artists that made it and and the song itself. So the song is Blurred Lines. And again, like I mentioned it, uh, the, the main contributors to the song were Pharrell Williams, Robin Thicke, and, and Clifford Harris. Um, as I was doing this, I mentioned this to you guys before we even started. I, I low key thought Pharrell was a stage name. I didn't know Pharrell was his actual name. His full name's Pharrell Lansillo Williams. I can't pronounce any names around here. I'm probably saying that wrong, but I I just assumed that was a stage name because I've never met anybody else named Pharrell. Um, I don't know if you guys have, or or if you guys even knew that was actually his real first name or not.
1: Uh, I knew that. I have not heard of anybody else named Pharrell. He's one of one, maybe.
2: I never assumed his name wasn't Pharrell. Oh, okay. Dang. So I'm the (laughs) only one who thought it was...
0: Well, and the reason I say that is because Clifford Harris Jr., is not clifford harris it's yeah. ti yeah um i don't even know where ti comes from i know he's the rubber band man but uh other than that I, I have no idea i feel like clifford harris is actually like a pretty cool name but maybe it doesn't hold a lot of street
1: maybe crap. not yeah when you're growing up as a black kid in atlanta trying to rap you know maybe at the time
0: you know not the
1: way to go yeah
0: <laughs> that's true um i pharrell williams too who who is very apparent throughout this entire case um from what I've heard about people who know a lot more about music than I do. He's like an absolute musical genius. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're actually going to be talking a little bit about some depositions in this case. And if you, there's video available on the internet, if you want to, and you want to take the time, you can go listen to his deposition or watch it. And you'll hear him talk about the ins and outs of like music history, how he creates music. And it just like, he was talking about stuff. It sounded like he was speaking Mandarin. It just went way over my head, but you'll be able to tell how, uh, how, how smart he is. I know he like started with the Neptunes and then uh, he formed a band called NERD um, and, and then went solo and then kind of went into producing. You guys both are married and so you may relate to this, but I have things that I say to my wife over and over and over and over again that are either quotes from tv shows or lines from songs that she just gets super annoyed with uh because i say it 150 times every year but there's a song called every everyone knows and it's spelled n-o-s-e from n-e-r-d and one of the lyrics in those songs is like hundred dollar bills look at you look at you and my wife works in kind of a cash business because she cuts hair um, and she always comes home, and every time there's a $100 <laughs> bill, every single time I go, $100 bill, look at you. And she's like, stop.
1: Can you not? Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, and then uh, in addition to Pharrell, we've got, and, and TI, we've got uh, Robin Thick, who will also be pretty emphasized on this podcast. Um, he is the son of Alan Thick. And I actually wanted to ask you guys if you even know who Alan Thick is. Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, actor. He was on some TV shows when oh, I was gosh. younger. What's the name of it? What's the one that I'm thinking of?
0: Trevor, do you know? Wasn't he?
2: He was in a, a really famous movie too. He was in one of the. He was in a movie. I can't remember which one it was. Uh,
1: something with monsters, I think. What's the TV show? Come Growing, on, Growing. Pains. Yes, Growing Pains. Growing Pains. Yes.
0: Oh wow! All right. Anybody? I older? watched
1: the show. I just couldn't recall just the can't name.
0: Remember? Okay. All right. All right. You knew he was on a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it it, before my time. It was pretty, I mean, it, it stopped running, and I don't know the exact date, but probably like 1992. Um, definitely before my time. Yeah. I mean, before most of our time, uh, yeah. in terms of like being able to consume TV. But I actually heard somebody refer to Robin Thicke as a poor man's Justin Timberlake while I was doing the, the research for this. And that made me laugh because it was very, very true. He came along uh, kind of when there was that like R&B, hip hop, um, kind of like uh, white person getting into the genre time period. And JT obviously took it and ran with it a little more. And Robin Thick tried and got kind of far, but what we're going to talk about kind of knocked him down a little bit.
2: I love the reference to Justin Timberlake. Anyone who knows me knows that I have a big soft spot for J.T. So, oh yeah, I uh, I appreciated saying that one,
1: and uh, not a coincidence that you know Robin Thicke's biggest hit was something that Pharrell produced and was involved with. I think you know that's the song of his that everybody knows, and there's not much past that. So,
0: yeah, and uh, and as we'll talk about in in a little bit, uh, Thicke had basically like no role in the song at all. He just happened to stumble into the studio drunk and high and be like, Hey, I want to be on that. Well, it um, seems
2: like it depends on when you ask him that question. That's very true. That's, <laughs> that's,
0: that's called the tease ladies and gentlemen, that's called the tease. So I, I think if you haven't listened to the song, um, you can hit stop on the podcast, go and listen to the song. You'll probably recognize it uh, because it was, it was a pretty big song. So it came out in 2013 and, when it first came out, even before we get into the issues that have the copyright, there were a bunch of issues uh, surrounding the song. And the first thing was <laughs> when they issued the song, they shot a music video and they shot two versions of the music video. Uh, it's got a very seventies feel, which is why there was like a lawsuit with the Marvin Gaye estate. But when they shot the music video, the first version that they shot that they put on YouTube was a version where it's Robin Thicke and Pharrell walking around, it's all white, and there's a bunch of women walking around, and they are topless. And they posted that on YouTube, and in t- the, the lyrics don't help, but in 2013, and this sounds honestly so bad that I even have to say that, but even in 2013, people thought the song and the music video were super misogynistic, and it objectified women, and there was an article by somebody, of vice, that said, uh, I, I think it sums it up pretty well how a lot of people felt about it. It was the music video and song combined a masterpiece of idiocy and the level of stupidity and arrogance required in order for a video this banal, offensive and unimaginative, unimaginative is almost impressive.
1: Yeah, I think one of the, if I remember correctly, one of the, the big talking points and issues that people had was you know, around consent and things, because I think, you know, it literally says something like, I, I hate these blurred lines. I know you want it. I know you want it kind of thing. So that was, I remember that being a big deal.
0: Yeah. So on um, like laid behind those specific lyrics are a bunch of topless women walking around Robin Thicke and, and Pharrell in the music video. And they knew at the time that when they posted it on YouTube, it stayed up for a week. I'm surprised it stayed up for a week. And it got over a million hits. Then they took it down and it was basically an intentional like controversy thing to get a bunch of buzz around the song. And they ended up shooting a second um, version of the music video at the same time where the women are actually wearing, I mean, they're wearing tops if you can call them that. I mean, the nipples are covered. Most of the time. Most of the time.
2: I actually was unfamiliar with the song. Well, I was familiar with the song, but I wasn't familiar uh, with it by name until last night when I I was like, well, I should probably figure out what it is that we're <laughs> talking about. I, I punched the uh, the song into YouTube and and um, it's cleaner than what you described now, but you're right, it's uh Not by much. Problematic.
1: Did, did you spot uh, Emily Ratajkowski in there? That I was her that was like better. first big thing. Interesting. Yeah, at least that she was recognized for. I
2: thought uh, I recognized that. Was, I was going to look it up, but then I was like, honestly, I, I feel like YouTube. And uh, my Google searches, tailoring things to me that I don't
0: really want. <laughs> you got you to gotta view that in an incognito tab. That's a little hint for everybody out there. But R- Radikowski actually is a model who at the time came out in support of it. And then she was a little bit of a poster child for um, the Me Too movement because in, I believe it was in 2020, she came out against the music video and said that she felt pressured to do it. And obviously uh, everything that underlined that movement, she kind of said, that's exactly what happened to me. Um, and so, it, it, you know, very unfortunate in in that sense. And I mean, for that reason alone, along with some of the lyrics, the critics hated it. But as with many things, it became super popular because it is a it is an earworm. It is a super catchy song. Yeah, uh, fun to like. You just listen to the background music. Fun to dance to. Again, if you're completely ignoring all the lyrics, and it it actually was on the top of the 100. Uh, Billboard 100 in the United States for uh, 12 weeks. It hit number one here. It hit number one in the UK. So it obviously wasn't um, disliked by the general public. Um,
2: well, I think it's helpful that most of the time you can't really understand what they're saying. All you really hear is the hey, hey, hey. And until you like mm-hmm. listen to it really closely, it's pretty hard to understand what they're saying.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's definitely one of those songs where like you, you listen to it and you sing it and all that kind of stuff, and then you actually go back because the the hook and the beat are so catchy. Yeah, you just end up like knowing it and and yeah, and then you go back and listen and like you said, it's like what what do they what do they mean by blurred lines? It's definitely a uh, it's definitely not not great. One of the things that was interesting around this time, I don't know if you guys remember the two thousand thirteen MTV musical uh, MTV video music awards yes um (laughs) but so for those who don't know you could probably go back and find this on youtube if they haven't taken it down but this was right around the time when um miley was trying to get out of her hannah montana phase yeah and she uh thick and pharrell came on and performed blurred lines right before miley came on and I don't even remember.
1: Wrecking Ball, maybe? Or was that before Wrecking Ball? It was
0: before Wrecking Ball. But I I can't remember what the song was because I literally don't have the, like, I don't have the audio in my head. I only have the visual. Yeah. She came out in, like, a very skimpy uh, outfit. There were bears dancing around her and, like, Robin, and then they were doing kind of a a mashup of their two songs. And Robin Thicke is on there. And um, (laughs) Miley's wearing a giant foam finger or no, Vick is wearing a yeah. giant foam finger and Miley comes up to him and there's a lot of uh, gyrating.
1: Yeah, some twerking. Some twerking,
0: yes. A lot of tongue out. Um, sometimes. makes sense. It, yeah. Sometimes yeah. in between <laughs> fingers, like it was, I mean, and it was just, I think everybody, I remember people talking about that being Miley's like Britney moment where they thought she lost it. Um, and I, like, I love Miley Cyrus. Like shout out to Malibu. Love that. Um, a lot of her other music. Um, but I think everybody thought she was like losing her mind. And uh, so that was another thing that just like controversy with the song, but also boosted it. And it's an image I can't get out of my head. Uh, and it's kind of crazy that Miley said she basically did that on purpose because she knew it would boost her popularity and credibility. And she's really, really smart. So let's actually talk about the case. So we've, we've given you a little background about the about the case uh, or about the song surrounding the case. Um, but what ended up happening is in, in 2013, how it really started is before the song came out, Robin Thicke did an interview with GQ. And in that interview, he said, hey, we've got this song that's coming out. We think it's gonna be a banger. Um, and I remember going into the studio and we were listening to some marvin gay music and got to give it up came on and me and pharrell looked at each other and we're like we got to make a song that sounds like that keep that in the back of your head for basically what's going to happen for the rest of the podcast because it's not great um for for thick and pharrell um so then they go in they uh record the song come out with it and then what ends up happening is through the grapevine i don't know exactly how they found out, but Thick and Pharrell end up hearing that the Marvin Gaye estate is thinking about filing a copyright infringement for them for basically stealing the sound of Got to Give It Up um, and a couple other like songs from the 70s. So just like with the Blurred Lines thing, if you haven't heard Got to Give It Up, you you have heard it if you're listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. I can almost guarantee you've heard it. Um, But hit pause, go listen to it. And you'll kind of hear the the similarities. So a lot of times when people hear about this lawsuit, they think, oh, the Marvin Gaye State filed a lawsuit against Pharrell and Thicke and TI and everybody else to um, stop them from infringing. But it was actually the opposite. And what happened is once they heard, Pharrell, Thicke, and TI actually filed the complaint for declaratory relief. So they were the plaintiffs, not the defendants. Stating that they heard there was going to be some adverse claims and rumblings, that there was going to be this lawsuit or that lines was stealing from, got to give it up. And so they, they took the first step and actually filed a complaint for declaratory relief. And for, for those who don't really know what that is, both the complaint and what one for declaratory relief would be, Carrie's going to give us kind of a lowdown of what that would be and kind of how it relates to this case.
1: Yeah, so a complaint is the first thing that, you know, gets a civil litigation, uh, a lawsuit up and running. It's what a plaintiff will file uh, with the court, naming the defendants, setting out basically the factual background of what happened, um, what claims they're asserting, what they're asking for at the end of the day. So it's like the very first thing that's usually filed. Um, A complaint for declaratory relief is a lawsuit asking the court to make a binding determination about the legal rights of the parties and their relationship with one another uh, and their respective rights with regard to a certain issue. So it's a way to get some certainty about the parties' rights with respect to one another. And the court's not going to, if it's just for declaratory relief, the court's not going to tell the parties that they have to do something specific. The court's not going to award damages. You have to include other claims in the lawsuit in order to get those things done. It's basically the court saying, okay, I know you guys disagree about this one issue. Here's how, you know, I'm determining that issue. Um, So even though damages won't be awarded unless you include another claim, it can still help the parties get some clarity and avoid accruing additional damages going forward. It's like basically, all right, let's just get this figured out now before we continue acting. And here, um, I believe, I don't know this for a fact, but I believe probably after that interview um, where Robin Thicke says, yeah, we were listening to (laughs) Marvin Gaye, I think the Marvin Gaye estate probably reached out to them and said, hey, you just admitted this. You better give us some royalties from this song. Uh, And, you know, T.I. and Robin Thicke and Pharrell probably told them to pound sand and said, well, they might be taking some action on this. Let's get this figured out now.
0: Yeah. And I, I think kind of, as I mentioned before, I, I might be giving Farrell too much credit and, um, but maybe not, but I think he's somebody who's smart enough to kind of understand what the implications of that would have been. So, so they filed the complaint first and that's, that's really unique in this situation, especially in a, in a copyright situation. And one of the reasons why, like, I think they probably might have done that. Again, I don't know this for a fact, but if I'm putting on my attorney hat is, so this is after the, the, song is released. The song was super popular and um, I think they did it in order to stave off the gay estate from filing a lawsuit and actually asking for um, what's called a preliminary injunction. I'm actually gonna have Trevor explain what a preliminary injunction is uh, so we can kind of get uh, an understanding of what that would be and how
2: that would actually relate to the case. So a preliminary injunction is to get an order from the court at the very beginning of a case that says something like, uh, one of the parties can't do the thing that it was doing that led to the lawsuit. Um, And to get a preliminary injunction, what you need to do is you need to go in front of the court early on in the case, usually file a a motion, or you have to talk about it in your complaint too. Um, And in your motion, you have to set forth four elements. Um, You have to show that you're that you're likely to win the lawsuit. You have to show that you're going to have irreparable harm if you don't get the injunction. You have to show that you're, um, there's this balancing of the equities uh, element. And what it says is, yes, this is going to hurt the other side, but it's going to hurt us more if you don't grant the injunction for us. And then there's this fourth public interest uh, element. and. A lot of the time, the person who's seeking a preliminary injunction has to to pay a bond, uh, which just means that they're paying some amount of money uh, either to the court or to a bonding company in order to act as sort of like an insurance policy. So here, what they were, what what we're talking about, and I I don't know that a preliminary injunction was actually uh, sought in this case, but what they would have been asking for is for the in theory is for the track to be taken, taken down from from sales back in this day, we're talking iTunes, right? (laughs) (laughs) We were talking about iTunes, Napster, all those spots. I'm not sure that that, uh, would have been the strategy. Uh, and it's because ultimately, and this is, this is an odd way to think about it maybe, but the plaintiff and the defendant actually have a shared interest in the song selling records. Right? So. The more records that sell, if the Marvin Gaye estate thinks that it's going to win, that's more money in its pocket. So I don't know why they would actually want a preliminary injunction. I suspect that it might actually have been uh, from the Pharrell and Thick side, uh, trying to pull the sting. Them saying, look, we're so confident in our case, we're so confident that we didn't do anything wrong, that we're gonna file this lawsuit first. And I think that was actually probably poor strategy because looking back on it, if you're a juror, you're probably thinking, well, if you didn't think you infringed on that, why'd you, why, why'd you care to begin with? Um, so, you know, we don't know the strategy. Ultimately, that would be subject to attorney-client privilege, uh, which is another thing we could talk, we could talk about. But, uh, you know, the, the lawyers in the case haven't, haven't told us why they did what they did. Um, but it, it, I'm not sure that a preliminary injunction makes sense because like I said, both sides actually have an interest in this record selling.
0: So, so your point would be, and, and what Carrie had mentioned earlier, is that you can file a complaint uh, and ask for damages. Declaratory relief did not. What the gay estate may have done is filed a lawsuit for damages to get paid for whatever residuals or, or percentage of the um, monies that were made from the song. And it would be in the best interest of both parties to have that song continue to top the billboard charts while it's going on because then the damages would be higher.
2: Yeah, I mean, not to, you know, bury the lead here, but like ultimately what ends up happening is the Marvin Gaye state gets damages that are a function of the amount of money that the record was making.
0: All right, well, Trevor just uh, ruined the ending. So we're just going to end the podcast there. And then <laughs> now, we're, now we're going away. No, 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 I'm just kidding. No, that's actually, that's a that's a good point. Something that I actually hadn't considered. I I was thinking it was more of a, it might've been a preliminary injunction. But to be honest, I think your theory might've been, uh, your theory might be kind of more, I think a, a better idea of what might have happened, but you you said the um, it, it kind of backfired, and one of the reasons I think it also kind of backfired is w- when you file a complaint, you are the party that is moving to ask the court for something, which means you have the burden of proof, and while it didn't really make a difference because what we're going to talk about in a second, the the other side kind of filed their lawsuit eventually through a counterclaim, it does make the it does make Morrell and Thick and Ti, uh, like you like you mentioned, viewed differently in the eyes of the jury because they now have the burden to prove something that that they wanted to, which is that they weren't infringing on the on the, the Marvin Gaye state and the song uh, that that was released back in the seventies. So what ends up happening is the defendants filed a counterclaim and an answer on October thirtieth, twenty thirteen. So roughly about four or five months after the lawsuit was filed. And and what an answer is very generally is, as Kerry said, the complaint basically just lays out very general terms, all the, the supposed or alleged facts that the plaintiff uh, claims are actually true. And the answer, it's kind of a boring document, you basically go through and you say like, you know, I deny that fact, I admit that fact, sometimes attorneys will put um, some recitation of counterfacts or anything like that. But for the most part, it's really like an admit or deny. Doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, but they also fire, filed a counterclaim, which is basically a lawsuit against the other parties. And it's, you know, one side moves first, but the other side moves and says, in addition to us denying the relief that they asked, we also want to ask for relief for a bunch of other things. And the reason why you do that in a counterclaim is, because if you file a different lawsuit, then based on some really kind of complicated procedural hurdles, the court would basically merge the cases anyway. So you just do it right there because it's the same parties, it's going to be the same set of facts, and you're just going to file a counterclaim. So what the what the gay estate actually did is they brought in a couple of additional defendants, in addition to Pharrell, Thick, and TI. And they brought a couple of different claims. So They added the uh, record studios, which were Star Trek Records, um, Geffen Records, Interscope Records, UMG Recordings, Universal Music, Sony and ATV Music, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Joe Betty or Joe Bet Music Company. And they also added the entities that Pharrell and um, Robin Thicke produced their music through. Um, Robin Thicke's, uh, based on the nature of the music video and the song it's not going to be surprising that the name of the uh, entity that he kind of did his music through was i like him thick music (laughs) um although i don't think the models were necessarily fitting for uh that that tagline everybody can make their own decision there and then pharrell being kind of the music savant that he is and sometimes geniuses are really weird (laughs) his was more Water from Nazareth Publishing, Inc. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on what that
2: might mean.
1: No? No clue. No
2: idea. Nothing? I'm okay. guessing. I'm guessing that he has another one called Waters from Nazareth. And uh, this oh, yeah, one is sure. More Waters from <laughs> Nazareth. Waters from Nazareth was
0: one that he did with JT probably. And he's like,
2: oh, that gave me a lot of water.
0: Uh, and so he'll do More Water with the... the uh poor man's jt but also
2: it's kind of interesting I, I think that geffen was actually brought in because they actually uh own or work with the gay estate i think they were an intervener of some kind uh oh, yeah. so it wasn't just um you know bringing in a bunch of defendant entities i think they were also cleaning up who the plaintiff entities were all at the same time just to get everyone involved all at the same time and anyone who could have a right or an interest in the copyrighted materials um, is just going to be in play here and we're going to deal with it all at once.
0: I, I actually did not know that. And, and you're right. One of the reasons you would want to do that is um, you want to make sure for collateral, estoppel, and res judicata, that stuff we'll talk about probably in a later podcast. But you want to make sure you've got all the parties that can actually bring a lawsuit for the, the same facts and controversies. So there's no issues of like double dipping or somebody relitigating the same issues that have already been decided by a court uh the counts that the the gay estate and the and the it would be the defendants and the counter plaintiffs and then they have like 48 other names that go throughout this entire case just because of the procedural posture but we're just going to refer to those as the gay estate throughout the rest of the pod. Um we're copyright infringement uh breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing breach of fiduciary duty breach of contract and rescission um so they brought on a couple a couple counts and uh, it basically made both sides kind of fighting each other. One of the uh, one of the things that popped up and, and actually caught a lot of uh, media attention was during the case, the attorneys for the gay estate took the d- the deposition of Tia uh, Thick and Pharrell. And I had previously mentioned kind of the the deposition of Pharrell, but there were a couple things that came out of the Robin Thick deposition that were. <laughs> Very interesting and I think very eye-opening for a lot of people, maybe not surprising to a bunch of other people. Um, but it, uh, we're going to have Carrie kind of explain what a deposition is in, in context of a, of a legal lawsuit.
1: Yeah. So a deposition is a chance for um, each party to get a witness or one of the key players um, into the room and answering questions under oath before a trial. So I know, you know, on TV shows and stuff, oftentimes it's like, all right, I'm suing you and I'll see you in court tomorrow, but that's not really how it happens. There's a period called discovery, which is usually the vast majority of the case timeline where parties will exchange documents um, and ask each other questions in writing um, and kind of gather evidence to support their claims so that they're in the best position to present their side of the story when trial rolls around. The deposition is basically a question-and-answer format. So an attorney for one of the parties will get a witness into a room. It's not in the court. It's usually at a law office or um, somewhere else and get the witness under oath just like as if they were in court and basically ask them questions to figure out the scope of their knowledge, what they're going to say at trial, um, what documents they have or know about and so the main goals, I think there's kind of four, the way I see it. You guys can chime in if you think of any others. But you want to, as I said, gather information and understand what the witness knows or doesn't know. You want to lock the witness into a specific story so that when trial rolls around, they can't change their tune based on other things that they've learned from the attorneys or throughout the case. Um you want to record the witness's testimony in case they're unavailable to testify at trial. Maybe they die. You know, maybe they just can't make it for any, any sort of reason. People disappear uh, sometimes. Yeah. You want to, you want to record it. So that worst case scenario, you can play that video or put up the transcript for the jury or the judge and say, here's what they have to say about this topic. Um, and kind of the fourth purpose I would say is to, Document details of their testimony so that when trial rolls around a year later, two years later, however long it is, um, the witness hasn't, you know, forgotten certain details. So you want to get their knowledge earlier on when maybe things are a little more fresh.
2: So Carrie, you uh, mentioned that you part of one of the reasons you you, uh, one of the purposes behind a deposition is to make sure that the witness doesn't change their tune. Trial. Did you choose those words intentionally?
1: I did not. But look at me. Look
0: at look at you with the unintentional <laughs> music pun. Um. Yeah. And and basically a deposition too is, it's really the first time you get to ask the other side questions because otherwise you would have no idea. Like Karen said, it's not like TV where like you go in and you put somebody on the stand and you have no idea what they're gonna say. I I feel like I have an unpopular opinion where like a few good men, great movie. But I get so frustrated at like the last scene because it's like Tom Cruise's theory as a as an attorney is like, you know what? I'm going to get up, and never ask this guy questions ever. And I'm going to get him to basically admit something just by badgering him into, you know, making himself prideful and everything like that. It's like, I mean, if he lost that case, he'd be kicked out of the Navy, malpractice suit, like no doubt because he's just like, I've got this. I'm going to ask him questions that I've never asked before so you basically ask questions so when you get to trial, you know what they're gonna say. And like Carrie mentioned, one of the strongest things about a deposition and uh, one of our attorneys here, uh, Jason Cobalt has, has told me when you're trying to explain something in layman's terms, the easiest way to figure it out is like, or, or explain it is just describe like the, the basic like car accident. If somebody ran a red light and hit somebody else and you ask him at the deposition, was the light green or red? And they say it was red at the deposition. And then when you put them up on the stand in trial and they say the light was green, you just bring up the trial transcript and it's like, well, you know, six months ago, you said the light was red. Now you're saying it's green. Which one's right? And it, just, it just takes away the credibility from the witness. So in, in that deposition that they took of, of Robin Thicke, uh, there was a huge omission by Thick, which uh, the tabloids ran with, and was actually a pretty big impact in the case. But I'm just going to read the question and answer. Uh, we just got, uh, you know, our presence was graced by our wonderful tax attorney, Phil, over there, who's getting the, uh, some more liquor from our, our lovely speakeasy. Phil, go ahead and say hi. Hi. I cheers everybody, but then I realized this wasn't video. It was just audio. So. <laughs> and I've already done that today as well, which Trevor pointed out very, very nicely. And this is an audio medium and not a visual medium. So, so you're not the only one today. If Phil, to launch, we'll have Phil video start thinking soon. of
1: some uh, sexy tax controversy cases that you can come on the pod and talk about. We
0: could have had you on because T.I., who's uh, a person uh, of interest in this case, actually got arrested for not paying his 2014 and 2015 taxes at the very least. Is thats that, is that Good or bad? Should I pay my taxes or should I not pay my taxes? Definitely pay your taxes. Okay. All right. <laughs> but yeah, don't pay your taxes and then come to me. I need the hours.
1: There you go. <laughs> if
0: anybody is listening to this that isn't an attorney at this firm, which I don't imagine is ever going to happen, uh, don't pay your taxes, then get hit by the IRS and then come hire wow. tensa. So this is basically this is a like, you know business generation venture. That's what the whole
2: reason not for legal advice. Is. What? Not, legal, not advice. legal advice. Not legal <laughs> advice. Not to sell. Not legal <laughs> advice. I'm telling you, we're going to
0: have you on with the Weston Snipes episode. Weston you know. Snipes, oh, out yes. of home. A lot of the criminals get busted
2: for tax. It's the tax that, that does them in. That's
0: how they got Capone? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the going back to the uh, Robin Thicke deposition. So I'm just going to read the question and answer. So the question is obviously coming from the attorney from the gay estate. And then Robin Thicke is sitting there with an attorney of his own. Um, and, and here's the, uh, back and forth. So question from the attorney, were you present during the creation of the blurred lines? He can't say he wasn't present because he said it in the GQ episode. So he says, I was present. Obviously I sang it. I had to be there. Question. When the rhythm track was being created, were you there with Pharrell? Thick says, to be honest, that's the only part where I was high on Vicodin and alcohol when I showed up at the studio. So my recollection is when we made the song, I thought I wanted I, I wanted to be more involved than I actually was by the time. Nine months later, it became a huge hit and I wanted credit. So I kinda started convincing myself that I was a little more part of it than I was because I didn't want him. I wanted some credit for this big hit, but the reality is, is that Pharrell had the beat and he wrote almost every single part of the song. So that's basically Robin Thicke saying, hey, I was super high and drunk at the time and I walked in and so I started singing some stuff and then the song got super popular. And I was like, I kind of want a piece of that.
1: Is this his way of trying to negate, you know, his previous interview saying we were listening to Marvin Gaye and then we had this aha moment together and decided to make something like that.
0: I You had mentioned like a- attorney coaching before. That's, yeah. It's gotta be that. like. But the, but the interesting thing is, like, they they've got to be – maybe they weren't, but it would be in their best interest to basically have, like, a combined story – like, a, a, a story that fits together. And this basically throws Pharrell under the bus. Like, I don't know what was going on. I was high Mike it in. I was drunk, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just, like, doesn't do any value to their case, like, whatsoever.
2: Well, you got to wonder if, like, one – they thought that Robin, if they, if Robin Thicke is just a non credible witness, then it's all to Pharrell, and Pharrell is maybe the better uh, testimony um, when it comes down to the actual, you know, music of it all. Uh, and and the other thing I was going to say is it's, it's an interesting uh, take because Robin Thicke, it's actually Robin Thicke's record, right? It's featuring, yeah. it's featuring Pharrell and Ti. <laughs> so he's basically saying, yeah, my name, I, this song was released by me, and I had nothing. to
0: yeah, that's a that's a great pitch for an artist going back to a record <laughs> label and being like, "Hey, sign me for another five more albums." <laughs> I don't I have, have anything to do with what I, I do. Can I get Pharrell with it? Too, yeah, basically, <laughs> exactly. You know. So that that was like, and obviously, I think it was like the Viking and alcohol thing that all the tabloids picked up on. Which I don't know why it's a surprise that music artists drink and do drugs, considering the history of musicians dating back to Elvis or before. I don't know. I don't know if Frank Sinatra did a bunch of drugs. I know he drank a lot. Uh no, Sammy Davis Jr., did he he like died at like 40 from like alcohol poison? Well not poisoning, but like alcoholism. Am I just saying something that I have no idea on? Do
1: you guys know any, no? I don't know I, anything about that. But yeah, in general the recording studio vibe, I think, has a reputation for, you know, recreational activities.
2: But it's also difficult when you have people who are touring and it's their job to be entertaining. And, you know, there's a lot of people relying on that for, for that purpose. Um, and, you know, there's just a whole scene that goes along with it and people trying to get amped for uh, for their performances. And uh, I think we're starting to see some change in that regard, but um, not across the board. I,
0: I cannot imagine doing this. Like, as, as awesome as it is being a viewer at a concert, I cannot imagine being the artist and doing that like 60 times out of 75 days in 60 different cities. And, and like you said, like being up for it. So obviously not advocating for substance abuse, but probably just like saying like totally. Showing some compassion. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you Bruce, that's why Bruce Springsteen is probably a one of one, right? Where he's been singing the same songs for the last 40, 50, 40 years uh, over and over and over again, you know, 150 times a year. Uh, and still gets just as amped for it as he ever was. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: I, I can't believe, I don't know if you guys have heard anything about like the Taylor Swift like tour that's been going on where she's playing for three and a half hours.
2: I knew you would do this to me.
0: Why? Why, because I want to uh, expose you as a Swifty? The,
2: the exact opposite. I was going to
0: say, my oh, money no, would, would be on the opposite. opposite. No, I just wanted him on the record to say he doesn't like Taylor Swift. No comment.
1: We're really going to have some people coming after us.
0: All right, I'm going to have to take your deposition and then we'll you so you have to answer the question. Um, so so what ends up happening after the deposition? There's a bunch of other discoveries, as, as Carrie said, and uh, Pharrell and Thick, who are uh, TI kind of dropped out of this lawsuit. He had some other uh, issues, as you heard us allude to, Phil, our, our tax guy here. Um, he, had some, he had some tax issues going on. So he kind of dropped out of the lawsuit. And considering they both had expert opinions at the time, that's kind of like a it's kind of like a little bit of a hail, hail Mary because if you have an expert opinion involved, it means there's like a really, really technical issue that need, needs to be addressed. You uh, you you see kind of why they moved for it because it was all based on whether the hooks, the vocals, the melodies, and the keyboard parts were actually infringing on the, the exact same quote-unquote like sheet music that the gay estate used uh, and Marvin Gaye used when it was got to give it up. And there's also an aspect of the copyright infringement that was, uh, that has an intention element to it. And if you believe what Thicke and Pharrell say in their deposition, in their GQ, um, articles, they basically wrote this in like an hour and a half. So they went into the studio, uh, Thicke says Pharrell knew what he was doing, had the beat, Thicke went in, sang the song and then came out, it's really hard, um, to say that they really had intent to infringe upon the estate notwithstanding Thick's, you know dumb comments in the gq article but uh doing it in an hour and a half is 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 pretty tough i think actually trevor we were talking about before we actually got on the pod that they wanted to appeal this motion for summary judgment the denial and they being thick and pharrell actually right when it happened but they technically couldn't
2: yeah, so, I mean, uh, the way the way it works, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about appeals a little more later, I think. Um, but you can only appeal an order from the court. There are only certain things you can appeal. What they tried to do here, I think, is do some kind of interlocutory appeal, meaning that they would just appeal that denial of the motion for summary judgment right at that time while the trial is on, before the trial happens. Um, they were not able to do that. Um and there's good reason for that. You know, if um, Pharrell um, and his group end up winning at, at trial, then there's really no harm, no foul. The issues move. Um, so we'll talk about that a little more later. But um, yeah, they end up appealing the motion for the denial of the motion for summary judgment, which is interesting because there, like you said, it's pretty easy to point to fact issues here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, two
2: experts. It's
0: it's an issue of intent, but also like so many, like basically granular issues when you go into, when you go into music. So after the court denies the motion for summary judgment, they end up going actually finally, almost to to trial. And for anybody who's been in a litigation uh, lawsuit, you know, that like going to trial is like two and a half years, actually you file the lawsuit and it, it takes a long time, a lot of discovery, depositions, motions for summary judgment, all that kind of stuff. But before they actually go to trial, uh, the plaintiffs in this case, and when we say plaintiffs, we basically mean Thicke and Pharrell, file a motion in lemonade. And I'm going to have Trevor explain this because I've never filed one myself. Uh, As you might know from the previous podcast, I am a bankruptcy practitioner by trade and by heart, and we never have any of these because none would ever get granted because a bankruptcy judge is just like, I'll hear whatever I want and I'll make a decision because it's never a jury trial or anything like that. But in a jury trial, emotion and limine is very important.
2: Yeah, and it's important because you have a jury. And so the whole point of emotion and limine is to prevent uh, certain evidence, issues, questions, whatever, uh, going in front of the jury. And the whole idea is that if a jury hears something or sees something, uh, it might be unfairly prejudiced by that information. So to give an on-point example, uh, right now we're talking about this Marvin Gaye case. What the Marvin Gaye estate wanted to do is it wanted to play the sound recording of Marvin Gaye singing, uh, got to give it up. So that this, this point kind of takes us back to what the copyright infringement is about. And when we're talking about music, we're talking about two different points There's two potential ways to bring a copyright infringement lawsuit in the music context. One is the sound recording, and when we're talking about that, that, we're usually talking about sampling. The other one is in the context of composition, and here we're talking about the context of composition, and that's important in this motion limiting limine because ultimately it gets granted. The court says you're not allowed to play the sound recording of Marvin Gaye um, singing Got to Give It Up because that could unfairly prejudice the jury. Ultimately, the judge says it doesn't matter that uh, the jury, one way or another, shouldn't base its decision on that on the vocal lyrics because those aren't what they're saying the infringement arises out of. So what the gay estate ends up being allowed to play is edits of the recording and not the entirety of the track itself. Uh, yeah, so I guess back to what Eric was, was saying, for bankruptcy, you wouldn't need to do that because the idea is that a judge can sit there and say, "Sure, that's important, or it's not." Um, the jury is the lay people, the you know, and this is you know a little bit maybe high and mighty of uh, the legal uh, community. But the idea is they won't be in the same position to decide what's important and what isn't, uh, and we don't want them to base their decision on things that uh, are not important. So before they can even hear the issues um, and the evidence. You might file a motion limiting to exclude certain evidence, like the actual sound recording. I've got to give it up.
0: Yeah, and, and like like Trevor was saying, basically the difference between like a jury trial and a bench trial is exactly what it sounds like, which is a jury trial, you have the jury making the factual decisions. So a, a jury of eight, a jury of twelve, whatever it is, and a bench trial, it's just the judge. The judge is going to make the factual determinations in the case and then apply the law to that rather than. And, you know, as we talk about whether or not the court or a jury is actually going to be the the trier of fact and the one who's going to make the legal decision, we should probably about what, like an hour into this podcast, bring up what the elements for a copyright infringement lawsuit would be. Uh, Copyright in this context and in in this specific lawsuit related to music is based on the intellectual property uh, or IP as the people in the biz tell me they call it. Uh, which means that when copyright law was established in the country, it was really on, for lack of a better term, uh, the sheet music. And so the elements are generally that the the person who's alleging copyright infringement has to show that first they have access, or in other words, that they were aware of or had heard the song, and that the song that they created was substantially similar to the song that was infringed upon. Now, I personally think based on, uh, the current state of the internet and everybody's access to music, that the first element is kind of dumb. I might not be the only one who agrees on that or agrees with that in the room. Um, He's not. Okay. So tell tell me why you don't agree with that.
2: Well, like, so if you're thinking about infringement, right, it's basically saying you stole something that I created. And if you looked at me and said, hey, you stole my thing, I'd say, no, you didn't. It's been locked away and, and under lock and key the whole time. Uh, or, well, no, I'm saying that the wrong way. If you came to me and said, you stole my thing, I'd say, no, I didn't. I've never seen your thing. And
0: in, in the day and age of streaming music, now, again, like you said, I mean, it was only 10 years ago, but in 2013, you had Apple Music, you had the radio, you had, um, you know, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. Like the access to music is so abundant that it's really a, a hard and a dumb argument for anybody to say that or prove in court that you didn't have access to or had heard the song. So, like, in this situation, Pharrell and Thick and T.I. saying, oh, I, I'd never heard Martin Gay's got to give it up is, is dumb. This was really created, like, in the 1940s if you had, like, somebody in, like, you know, Florida who, quote-unquote, infringed on somebody's music from, like, Berkeley uh, that lived in San Francisco because unless they probably listened to the radio station in that in that basically – vicinity, it's state, local area, they're not going to be able to hear it.
2: Well, I'll tell you why that rule is interesting now, though, is because what it actually does is it incentivizes people to publish their their art, right? So if there wasn't this rule, um, people might want to, we see it all the time in the business world, right, where if someone can't get intellectual property protection over something like proprietary business secrets, their strategy is to keep them insulated and prevent other people from finding out about them what this rule does is it says well if you put your stuff in the public and other people hear about it and learn about it and they copy you we're going to protect that so it incentivizes people to publish their music online uh, and not fear some backlash from it
1: yeah and I think um, kind of to Eric's point is you know nowadays the opportunity to have heard it or the access is probably much more of a given. I think most of these cases, and again, I don't know too much, but I think most of them center on the other element, which was the substantial similarity between the two pieces of work. And um, one note on that, it's not just looking at the work number one as a whole and work number two as a whole. It has to be, if I'm, I believe I'm correct on this, substantial similarity between the protectable elements of that work. So not everything is protectable, and with music in particular, that's important because there's only like, what, seven notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then if you include sharps and flats, there's like an additional five. So 12 total, right? So if you think about it, there's they're working with kind of a limited set of um, ingredients here. So you can't just say everything is protected, and if they're similar, substantially similar at all, it's protected. That just wouldn't, we wouldn't have, you know, music, so
0: yeah, there's only, there's only a finite amount of kind of music that you can write. And, and as Trevor had mentioned in the Motion Lemonade, that's what they, that's the reason why the recording itself got excluded, you know, portions of it in the trial because it wasn't the recording, it's the sheet music. And that's kind of, uh, you know, built into those elements. So while number one isn't, you know, maybe not really applicable anymore, the substantial similarity is on you know, the actual music that was written. And again, if, if you're a a little bit of a legal nerd, I would encourage you to go back and like, read the court's denial of the motion for summary judgment. There's like a bunch of images of, you know, sheet music and, you know, keyboard playing and all that kind of stuff. And you just kind of see how technical it really gets. So after the court grants the motion to we finally, 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 finally get to the trial and I, as i was preparing for this i had a couple people come up to me and be like that must be really weird uh to have a trial because you probably just get the artists up there and they just play the song now they can't play the recording but i can say that like the elements of the song are played and i actually heard a story about um john fogarty from uh ccr ccr had a big breakup. It was a bad decision by him, but John Fogarty basically gave uh, the manager of CCR all the rights to all of their songs from like 1960s, like 68 to like 78. And the manager, after John Fogarty went solo, sued him for copyright infringement saying this sounds like a CCR song. And at the trial, they said that John Fogarty went up onto the bench, took his guitar and played the two songs and was just like, hey, judge, by the way, here's like the song that I played. And he, you know, played like 30 seconds of the song and then was like, here's the song that they think uh, is infringing upon it and plays that song. And then the judge was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not infringement.
2: And Sheeran just did that in the uh, Thinking Out Loud trial that was like a week or two ago. And Sheeran did the exact same thing. He stood up at the stand and, and played his song. And uh, they backed that up with, it was, a different Marvin Gaye song, uh, <laughs> that he was alleged of infringing. And, um, ultimately, uh, he was concluded not to be liable. Uh, and it's actually pretty common. I think in the music space, I, I when I was, uh, researching this, it seems like this was actually fairly unusual And by this, I mean, the Marvin Gaye instance where they didn't let them play the track. Um, and you know, it's a strategy by a lot of plaintiffs to endear the jury to them by saying, here's my music uh most people like my music the jury's probably gonna like it if i play it
0: yeah I, I just imagine like the judge and the clerk like going back when they see this like hit the docket and they're like we're just gonna deny all the motion so we get to trial so we can just have our own like <laughs> personal like personal concert <laughs> like just hoping somebody like sues your favorite artist for copyright infringement we can be like yeah oh, motion for summary judgment don't worry about it let's go to trial i'm gonna force them to like Play the, their entire uh, catalog just just for my own edification.
2: That's a really cynical view of the legal world, and I love it.
0: Yeah, it's probably a true
2: view of the legal world.
0: But we will. Uh, I'm going to edit that one out because <laughs> everyone's going to hate me for that. So so they, they get they get to the trial, and again, it's it's really granular, and it's on actually the the copyright of again, for lack of a better term, kind of the sheet music of the recording, not if it sounds the same but it's a jury trial. And so that's kind of how the Marvin Gaye estate presents it to the jury. It's important to note that like everybody in the music industry at this time is really paying attention to this lawsuit because so much of music that was created and is created is based on like, for lack of a better term, a feel you get, you know, you can go through 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, everybody says, that they kind of get their inspiration from a band or a genre or anything like that and so they're really worried about whether or not the marvin gay estate notwithstanding the fact that they basically didn't copy any of the notes that they didn't like it kind of sounds the same but really the infringement from the copyright perspective isn't really there um that everybody's paying attention and what actually happens notwithstanding what everybody thinks that everybody is believes thick and pharrell are in a good position the jury actually issues its ruling and uh rules in favor of the gay estate and it it kind of took the music industry um by storm everybody was shocked and uh it it really kind of flipped what everybody thought was going to happen and scared everybody into kind of how they write music going forward um, one of the things that Thick and Pharrell did right after the jury verdict came out is they filed a motion to discard it. There was a couple of things during the trial. They said that the court allowed the jury to heal, hear too much of the recordings of the song, um, and by song I mean like the the Marvin Gaye song. And um, I think that, it was jury
2: instructions too.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was jury instructions as well. And then another argument that they made was they said the expert that the gay estate hired actually formed its opinion on the recordings, not the musical compositions. And in the end, what the jury said is that Thick and Pharrell had to pay the gays heirs and like the gay estate 7.4 million later reduced to 5.3 million plus 50% royalties in the song going forward. Um, And those were the damages in the case, but that really wasn't the big issue. Um, the, the song at that point made millions of dollars had made millions, Thick had made millions um, I don't think the damages were really the issue I, I really think it was um, the fact that every artist would go into the studio now just super afraid of, of what was going to happen if they tried to create a song based on a feel of like, like Biggie or
2: um, CCR or something like that Um, Well, it's interesting, one thing that I have have a sense that was kind of operating in the background is I kind of wonder if the gay estate wanted to distance itself from this song because of how problematic it was. And so I'm not sure that in most cases, you know, this lawsuit gets filed, but in this case, it might have been, you know, a point of, look, Marvin Gaye's estate does not want to be associated with this highly problematic song uh, and so they're not going to do it. And also, you know, a lot of artists do their homework in advance and actually clear their licenses with anything that could, a lot of them tend to be overprotective in here.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I, that could have been one of the motivating factors here, who knows, but I do think it's, I mean, I've heard of probably a dozen of these in the last like 10 or so years, you know, whether it's Um, someone asking Olivia Rodrigo for writing credits, or you just mentioned the Ed Sheeran one, like, like this does happen a lot. It's usually when somebody has a super popular song and the, you know, plaintiff says, well, wait, you, you pretty much just copied mine and made it better. Um, So I'm going to see you for this. So who knows, but I, I've heard of a bunch of these for sure.
0: Yeah. And actually on the Olivia Rodrigo thing that she, she came out with her album and then, kind of, I think similar probably to what Pharrell and Thicke heard while they filed the lawsuit in the first instance, because they heard rumblings. She actually went out and gave credits to the artist. Paramore. Paramore, Taylor Swift, all that kind of stuff. And she has recently said that that cost her millions mm-hmm. and she might not have needed to do it had this lawsuit not come out. And, and Trevor, I would, I would agree with you on like the, the fact that the song is problematic notwithstanding the fact that the gay estate seems to be pretty litigious. Like, I don't think there's a whole lot of things wrong with the Ed Sheeran song that came out. Like, I was about to make the same point. Yeah, a
2: lot of these do seem to involve the Marvin gay estate. Yeah. Uh, which, his music is ubiquitous, so uh, a less cynical view of it is that, a more cynical view is they they're, want trying to get, they're trying to get what they think is theirs. They want some money. Yeah. And it, it's
0: interesting, and we'll talk about the dissent on the appeal a little later, but the uh the dissenting opinion basically said that like had marvin gay been alive at the time he would not have brought this lawsuit because he knew how detrimental it would have been to the music industry so what what happens after this comes out is it's so important and it's so um basically germane to what the music industry does is that they they file an appeal it's not surprising and the basis of the appeal is that they didn't show substantial similarities and the jury couldn't basically make that determination and they made an incorrect ruling there. And when they file the appeal, what also happens is they get an amicus brief filed. I think there were six filed. Don't quote me on that. Could have been less, could have been more. But I think there were six
2: amic- amicus. Amicus. So amicus. I, I'm i wrong. I'm wrong. You're, you're, you're right. I I'm like wrong. amicus because then when you're t- talking about them plurally. <laughs> you can say amici. 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 Oh, really? Amici. And uh, there's an Amici's Pizza over in Los Angeles. That was my pizza place growing up.
0: Okay. So you're basing your pronunciation of the word yes. on a pizza place Correct. that you used to go to. Yeah. All right. It well, makes me, it
2: makes me happy. Okay. All
1: right. I think it is Amicus. I also say Amicus because I feel like it's. Doesn't sound as pretentious, but...
0: The amount of things I've pronounced wrong on this podcast, I would say that whatever you hear out of my mouth, take the exact opposite. So, and I even thought it was Amakai,
2: not Amici. I'm pretty sure Carrie just called me pretentious and I'm not mad about it.
1: <laughs>
0: Amici.
2: Ami- now I gotta look that up. I know there's a basketball player called
0: John Amici. He's like one of the only British basketball players. He's play for the magic. Anyway. Uh, that's a tangent. That's a way that's back in the nineties. Um, so what an amicus brief actually is, I think the Latin of it is actually friend of the court is what it means. And, uh, so it's people who are permitted to file a brief in support of a position that are not parties to the lawsuit and you get a bunch of artists and recording studios that actually file the brief to the appellate court saying hey you made the wrong decision or not you rather the trial court made the wrong decision you need to flip this um, because it's very important to the recording industry and there's just here's a couple of names that supported the filings and so basically put their name behind these amici briefs uh han zimmer if you ever heard like a soundtrack to a movie it's probably from him earth wind and fire john oates um, Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears, Linkin Park, and Jason Mraz, who I actually learned, by the way, does not know how to read sheet, sheet music.
1: Interesting.
0: Has no idea. Can't can't read music.
1: Because doesn't he play, like, guitar and piano and yeah. stuff? Yeah.
2: He plays, like, five different instruments.
1: Just from a... sound?
2: For also the same thing in his deposition. It's not that unusual. Really? Yeah. Oh.
0: Interesting. I, I mean,
2: Jason Mraz, though, like covers a bunch of other
0: artists and he just does it on like by ear um i i heard it on elise myers uh podcast i don't know if you guys follow her, yeah she's hilarious
1: she's awesome yeah
0: she's awesome but she did an interview with him he's like yeah i don't know how to read cheap music i just do it by ear and I was like, that's
1: crazy that's legit
0: that's crazy he was the reason why i tried to pull off fedoras for about eight months of my life oh god yeah it didn't work out very well yeah, it's a, it's a big dry spell for, for college air. So, you know, trial and error, as they say. Um, so after they get the, uh, the briefs, both from the, you know, the gay estate, Thick and Pharrell, and then all the artists, the court actually upholds the trial court's opinion that it was infringing upon the, the Marvin Gaye song and it's kind of like a, uh, a the court, the appellate court, almost punts on it. It's a very timid opinion, and it basically says that it, they don't really want to challenge jury opinions because they they don't want to offend juries making a decision. Every time it goes to a jury, you know, it's a jury of your peers. They don't really want to say if you make a decision, you should be worried about what the appellate court's going to do. Um, and so the the court upholds the opinion and says that yes, it was infringement. The jury court made the right decision, and it's a it was a panel of three, and two judges said that, and one judge said I disagree with you and filed a dissenting opinion. And a, and a dissenting opinion is when when you get a bunch of judges, not like a jury trial or a bench trial, um, or like a motion for summary judgment at a trial court where there's one decision. It's it's two or three or eight or nine, depending on whatever the panel is, a judge is entitled to basically file an opinion that says, I don't agree with the majority. It used to be a really rare thing. I don't know if you guys experienced the same thing, but when I took like Civ Pro, it was like, you start, you know, you start at like, you know, 1790 with the opinions, and then you don't see a dissenting opinion until 1860. And then when you get to like 1993, it's like majority four dissenting opinions and it makes Uh, the reading in law school, like, a lot harder.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, think about it this way. If you were to write an opinion on Quill and Ink, how much longer is it going to take you until the typewriter was invented?
1: (laughs) They were just lazy? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Trevor's opinion is
0: uh, Supreme Court justices from, you know...
2: I wouldn't call them lazy, but think about how long it would take to write one of those opinions. I just
0: think it's because they didn't have clerks.
2: It could be that, too. I guess
0: there was apprentices or something like that, whatever it was like Abraham Lincoln, notwithstanding the fact that he was an attorney, like never went to law school. He was an apprentice. You get like your law degree through yeah. An apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. some states will do it, uh, California. California does. Yeah, that's why. So we just had an attorney here pass the California bar. Danica, congratulations. Uh, it was a 33% pass rate this year in the February uh, bar exam. Wow. Uh, calendar window a third. That's crazy.
1: That's wild. California's bar is notoriously difficult. Yeah.
0: Or is it's it a just reputation. a lot of bad people taking maybe. the bar exam? Yeah, maybe. A little bit of column A, column A, a little bit of column B. Yeah. So uh, I I would encourage everybody to, if you ever want to see a scathing descent, which there's a lot of them, but this one is actually pretty scathing. So um, the, the descent basically says that the the case should have been granted on summary judgment. So they shouldn't have had to send it to a jury in the first place. And the judge says it was so obvious that the court should have granted summary judgment as a matter of law, that this is basically the, the closing line that she gives. And I had mentioned this um, before, kind of how like if Marvin Gaye was around, he wouldn't have brought, brought the lawsuit. But I'm just going to read like the, the, the punchline to the dissent. It says, the gays, no doubt, are pleased by this outcome. They shouldn't be. They own copyrights in many musical works, each of which, including Got to Give It Up, now potentially infringes the copyright of any famous song that preceded it. The majority devotes nine pages of its opinion, rebutting Judge... Winn. Okay. All right. I was going to say that. That's what I think it is. Judge Winn's arguments. Uh, thank you. You just saved me from making a bad Got mistake. You. I wasn't going to do it. Uh, it claims Judge Wynn's conjectures about the inhibiting consequences of extending copyright in musical works to cover stylistic elements are unfounded hyperbole. Um, so she basically says my colleagues are idiots and they ruin the mu- music
2: industry. So I love a spicy descent. Uh,
0: oh, they're the best like, yeah. because they, they don't, it's not, it's not going to be lost. So I can say whatever they're going to say. And uh, those were always not, notwithstanding the fact that it added about two and a half hours to every single night of uh, studying for Civ Pro. They were, they were the best to write, uh, or best to read, rather. So after the appeal go, uh, gets shut down and the jury trial verdict gets affirmed, that that's basically it. But uh, initially, the people thought in the music industry it would be a huge issue. But the Ninth Circuit later actually made a decision about uh, it was in a lawsuit between Led Zeppelin and some, I don't know, really, really obscure artists who said they stole Stairway to Heaven. Uh, the Ninth Circuit actually ruled in favor of Led Zeppelin, and the Supreme Court turned down the opportunity to hear the case. And so it kind of like, I don't know, took away the teeth of the Ninth Circuit's decision, um, upholding the Thick and Pharrell uh, denial of the appeal. And that's kind of pulled back a little bit, but it, it still does give artists nowadays pause in recording songs and determining like what their quote unquote influence is, or at least going in a GQ article and saying, hey, we listened to this song and this was our influence. I, I still think to this day, that was probably something the jury like looked at and was like, we can't tell we didn't infringe upon it when you were high on Vicodin and alcohol and you're like, I want to copy this song and I'm going to sing exactly like it. But, but it has resulted in uh, some artists taking the safe road. Like we mentioned before, Olivia, Rodrigo, just giving credit. That's, I think that's kind of what I like on Spotify. Trevor's not on Spotify. You're only on SoundCloud. SoundCloud. I know.
2: <laughs> SoundCloud, Apple music, YouTube. Those are kind of my go-tos. Oh, you didn't
0: tell me, you told me you were only on SoundCloud. I,
1: I know I like, Apple music. I didn't know you were on SoundCloud. I'm need, I'm up and comers. I, I'm wherever I
2: need to be. <laughs> Spotify is not it. When did you start like
0: subscribing to Apple Music? Is it like a... when
2: they stopped letting me just use iTunes? And the whole reason yeah. I used Apple Music over Spotify is because it allowed me to keep my iTunes library. And now that's kind of going the way of the dinosaur.
0: So I'm totally with you because I had an iPod. Uh, it's still plugged into my car. It's a 160 gig iPod mm-hmm. video, uh, that's got like the old, like, I, I don't know, like probably two inch long, like charger yeah. that you need, um, that has all my music on it that I ripped off of LimeWire. Trevor and I are going to do a pod on that later. We are. Uh, and LimeWire, Napster, all that kind <laughs> of stuff, all the viruses it gave our computer. Um, Parents computer. Yes. Oh. That was my laptop in college, actually. I had to get like three of them just because (laughs) two of them completely shut down. Uh, And it was because of LimeWire. But all my, it's like 45,000 songs on there. My laptop got stolen and my iTunes were on that. And after I got that, I was like, ah, whatever. I'll just do Spotify. So I still have that plugged in, but haven't added a song to it since 2014 when that laptop got stolen. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't good. Kind of a sad night.
1: Very. But that's what scary. happens
0: when you leave your car unlocked in uh, Collingswood, New Jersey. So, back, now I forget where I was. Back. Okay, back to where we were. Basically, uh, I think going forward, you're going to see more people give, kind of take the the high road of Olivia Rodrigo to not have to spend millions of dollars on these lawsuits, um, and just kind of give credit to people, pay the royalties if it gets super popular might cut into your percentage a little bit, but it's probably worth the risk versus having to deal with, I think the, the appeal was decided in 2019, 18, 18. So that's five years of litigation that you gotta go through.
2: I was looking at the docket earlier today. there were filing still happening in 2020. Yeah.
0: They had like a, they had a fee application uh, issue from the gay estate that actually went in the favor of like and Pharrell, it was like the only thing that they wanted. The case, three I half, guess, the most three and a half million dollar
2: fee after it was denied
0: entirely. Basically, I think going forward, you'll probably see uh, a little more credit up front,
1: just or to- or maybe like I think what happened with Olivia Rodrigo, and especially like now in the days of social media and everybody being super loud online, is people heard good for you, and we're like this sounds exactly like paramore and so people were chattering about that online so at least like I think she kind of did it retroactively to kind of quiet that noise and you know prevent a lawsuit I don't know if many people are doing it just from the jump essentially admitting like yeah I copied this but if people start talking or someone comes around asking for royalties maybe they'll just settle at that point instead of taking it to litigation.
0: Yeah. Settlement will be a big thing. And, and Trevor kind of hinted to it a little bit. There's an Ed Sheeran opinion that just came out. I, th- I think he won his lawsuit against the market. Yeah. That, again, took some teeth out of what this, uh, you know, blurred lines lawsuit uh, kind of established, but it was a huge case um, made a, made a big impact on the music industry and uh, yeah, just procedurally an, a nightmare. That's probably why there was a three and a half million dollar fee app. And that was probably a small percentage of what they actually um, (laughs) spent in this whole thing. So, but they ended up getting, you know, royalties to a song that's probably played at every single wedding, notwithstanding the uh, misogynistic. And I believe the quote from Vice was "rapey" lyrics. So, uh, but everybody loves to play it at a wedding because everybody likes to dance to it because nobody knows what it means. So,
1: Catchy wins.
0: Yeah. catchy wins. So <laughs> I think I think on that note we'll probably end, but um, thanks again for for tuning in to another episode of Speakeasy sessions um, for for Carrie and Trevor, whose last names I'm not gonna say because I don't know how to pronounce them, I guess. Um, I'm Eric, and uh, uh, until next time, we'll, Eric uh, Moats. Eric Moats. Yeah that, I've heard that quite a bit. Uh, I will uh, until next time we'll 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 see you later. We'll